smoky winter dusk begins to settle over the railway station at Crewe. Its first-class waiting room grows steadily more stagnant. The grimed windows do little more than sift the failing light, and the massive black leather furniture becomes less and less inviting. It appears to have been made for a scene of extreme and diabolical violence that one may hope will never occur. Things like this become exaggerated in memory, and the afternoon I have in mind is many years distant, but I certainly became more conscious of the defects of my surroundings when my fellow passengers hurried out for the down train, leaving me to wait for the up. And nothing, and nobody, as I supposed, but a drowsy fire for company. The animated talk before we parted had been occasioned by an account in the morning's newspapers of the last voyage of the Hesper. She'd come in the evening before, days overdue, and even her master had not refused to admit that certain mysterious and tragic events had occurred on board, though he preferred not to discuss them. He agreed, however, that his ship was at present in want of a second mate. But the voyage of the Hesper is now, of course, an old tale many times told, and I myself, having wearied of her mysteries, had decided to seek out the refreshment room, when a voice behind me suddenly broke the hush. It was an unusual voice, rapid, incoherent. I shifted my chair and turned to look. Evidently this, the only other occupant of the room, had until this moment been as unaware of my presence as I of his. He seemed for a moment to be in doubt even of what I was. I'm sorry, I said. I supposed... Merely what I was saying, sir, is that those gentlemen who have just left us had no more notion of what they were talking about than an infant in the cradle. How so, I said. I'm only a landsman myself, but... He shifted a little nearer. A smallish man, muffled up in a very respectable greatcoat, at least two sizes too large for him. You don't have to go to sea for things like that. But they'll find out all right, all in good time. He glanced around him. You know where you are in a place like this, though. It's solid. Yes, I agree. It certainly looks solid. Ah, looks. But what is your solid, sir? With that he rose and seated himself opposite me, and I must confess that now that he was near, I did not much care for the appearance of this stranger. In spite of his admirable greatcoat, he looked in need of a barber, as well as of medicine and sleep a need that might presently exhibit itself in a hankering for alcohol. But I was mistaken. He asked for nothing. He just wanted company, human company. He merely, it seemed, wanted to talk about himself, suddenly plunged into his past. I was a gentleman's servant when I began, sir, he set off. First boot boy, then footman, and so on. Never married. Petticoats are nothing but encumbrances in the house. But I must say, if you keep yourself to yourself, it sees you through in time. What you have to beware of is those of your own calling. Domestic. That's the same everywhere. Nobody's reached much past the cat and dog stage in that. Jealousy. And if you don't stay where you're put, there's precious little chance of pickings when the funeral's at the door. 
The last situation I was in was with the Reverend W. Summers, in the depths of the country, just myself, a young fellow by the name of George, and a woman who came in from the village. How long the Reverend hadn't cared for females in the house I never knew, but he was attached enough to his sister, quite a nice lady, but we had to look alive when she was in the house. Oh, yes, but that, thank God, was seldom. She never took to the vicarage. I can hear her now, black this and black that. Too dark, too vaulty, too shut in. Trees in the front, everlastings. Though open behind with cornfields. You could see for miles from the upper corridor windows. Small panes that take a lot of cleaning, but George did the windows. George had come from the village. Nothing but a few cottages. Why the old church lay a mile away from it, I can't say. The Reverend had private means, naturally. I knew that before it came out in the will. He was a gentleman. Give him his books, and tomorrow, like yesterday, and he gave no trouble. Mind you, he liked things as they should be. Everything had to be punctual to the minute, and the good things good. I've never seen choice of fruit than came from his houses and orchard. Though it was here, the trouble began. But it was an easy place, and fair prospects too, if you could wait. The Reverend told me himself that he'd remembered me in his will, if still in his service. You know these lawyers put it. In fact, he'd given me to understand that if in the meantime any of us went elsewhere, the one left was to have the lot, but not death. There it turned out I was in error. But I'm not complaining. I've enough to see me through however long I'm left. I might have stayed to this day if the old gentleman's gardener cared to stay too. He began it. Him gone, we all went. And that's where these fine gentlemen here were talking around their hats. What I say is, keep on this side of the tomb as long as you can. Don't meddle with that hole. They seem to forget there may be some mighty unpleasant meetings. And what about the further shore? It's my belief there's some kind of ferry plying on that river. And coming back depends on what you want to come back for. Anyhow, they said the old house was haunted. A previous vicar had even had the place exorcised. Candles and holy water. That kind of thing. Sheer flammery, I call it. If at the beginning there was anything in that house that was better out than in, it never troubled me. At least not at first. No, I'm not complaining. Live at peace with who you can, I say. But when it comes to as crusty a customer and a Scotchman at that, as was the gardener. Then there's a limit. Mengus, he called himself. He lived down at the lodge, and his widowed daughter kept house for him, with one little boy, harmless enough as children go, but noisy, and not for the house. Now why, I ask you, shouldn't I pick a little of this gentleman's precious fruit? Or a cucumber for a salad, with our Mr Mingus busy with the frames? I don't hold with all these hard and fast restrictions, at least outside the house. Not he, though. We wrangled about it week in, week out, and him with a temper which once roused was past all reasoning. Not that I ever took much notice of him until it came to a point past any man's enduring. But duty is duty, 
and when a man takes advantage of what is meant in pure friendliness, well, one's bound to make a move. What I mean to say is, I used occasionally, pantry window wide open and all that, I used occasionally to offer our friend a drink. But it came to become a kind of habit, and to be expected, which is always a bad condition of things. Well, there came along, five years ago, you may remember, an extraordinary hot summer, and an early harvest necessarily, and gardening is thirsty work, I will say that for it, which being so, better surely virgin water, or a drop of cider, than ardent spirits, it stands to reason. Besides, we had had words again. Let him get his own drinks, was my feeling, and you can hardly call me to blame if he did. There was the pantry window hanging wide open, and there was the ruin of him within arm's reach from outside. I'd watch him there, though he couldn't see me, being behind the door. And practices like that, sir, as you will agree with me, can't go on. It had gone too far. And then I came down one morning to find one of my best decanters smashed to smithereens on the floor, Irish glass and all. Cats and sherry, you ever heard of it? And out of revenge, he filled the pantry with wasps by bringing in overripe plums. And so things went from bad to worse. A widower, too, with a married daughter dependent on him. No, sir, I had to call a halt to it. A friendly word in his ear, you may be thinking, might have sufficed. Believe me, not for him. Then I thought of George. Not compromising myself in any way, of course, in so doing. I said to him one day, George... A word in time saves nine, but it would be better coming from you than me. You take me? Hold your peace till our friend's sober, then hand it to him. A word of warning, I mean. Say we're muffling things up as well as we can from the old gentleman, but that if he should hear of it, there'd be fat in the fire, and no mistake. You take it easier from you, George. The responsibility being mine. Lord, how I remember George. He had a way of looking at you, as if he couldn't say bow to a goose. Bolting blue eyes, as simple as an infant's. But he wasn't stupid, oh no. And now I reflect, I think he knew our little plan wouldn't work. But there, whatever he might be thinking, he was so awkward with his tongue that he could never find anything to say until it was too late. So I left it at that. What he actually did say, I never knew. But the very next afternoon, our friend came along to the pantry window and stood there looking in, swaying he was, but not with drink, just fury. "'Where's that George of yours?' he said. "'Fetch him out. I'll teach him to play the Holy Moses to my daughter. Fetch him out, and we'll finish it here and now.' "'I don't want to meddle in anybody's quarrels,' I said pleasantly. "'So long as George does his work as will satisfy my eye, "'I am not responsible for his actions in his off-time.' "'How was I to know, may I ask? "'If it was not our Mr Mengis who had smashed one of my best decanters?' "'George is a quiet, unbeseeming young fellow,' I said. "'And if he thinks it's his duty to report any misgoings on, "'either to me or to the Reverend,' It doesn't concern anyone else. That seemed to sober my fine gentleman. Mind you, I'm not saying there was anything really wrong with him. He was a first-rate gardener, I grant you that. I noticed he was looking a bit pinched, hollow under the eyes, sleepless nights perhaps. 
But how was I to know his precious grandson was out of sorts with a bad throat, I ask you? The best thing you and George can do, I went on, is to bury the hatchet, and out of hearing of the house, too. With that, I turned away, leaving him to think things over. What else could I have done, sir? There was little light of day left in our cavernous waiting room by this time, only the glow of the fire and the phosphorescence of the gaslights. If he was anxious about his grandson, I ventured, it might explain his short temper. Well, sir, you'd hardly go as far as to say that anxiety over his grandson would excuse him for what was little short of manslaughter. Keeping facts as facts, if you'll excuse me, our friend waylaid George by the stables that evening, and a wonderful evening it was, shepherd's delight and all that. But to judge from the looks of the young fellow's face when he came into the house, there hadn't been much of that in the time they'd had together. I said, sponge it down, George, and maybe the old gentleman won't notice anything wrong. It wasn't to reason I could let him off his duties. But as for the reverend's not noticing it, there as luck would have it, I was wrong. For some time later, George came along to me snuffling as if he'd been crying, and all that I could get out of him was that he had concocted some story to account for his looks, the like of which nobody in his senses would credit. And the next thing I heard was that our Mr Mengus had been called into the house and given the sack there and then. Well, our friend came rapping at the back door that evening, shaken to the marrow, if ever a man was, and just livid. I told him, and I meant it too, that I was sorry for what had occurred. I told him too that the only hope left was to let bygones be bygones. Not he. He said, and he was sober enough then in all conscience, that come what may, here or hereafter, it'd be even with him. Aye, and he made mention of me also, but not so rabid. A respectable man too. Never a word against him till then, and not far short of sixty, and then... The old creature paused until a mainline train had gone roaring through. And then, though he wasn't found till morning, he must have gone straight out, said good-bye to nobody. He must have gone straight out to the old barn and hanged himself. And it's my belief that it wasn't so much the disgrace of the affair, but his daughter and grandson that were preying on his mind, and yet, why, he never so much as asked me to say a good word for him, not one. Well, that was the end of that so far. And it's a curious thing to me how going back over the past clears everything up like, but at least for the time being. But it's what we were saying just now about what's solid that sets me thinking. I've been told, sir, that after cremation, we amount to no more than what you could put into a walnut. And my point, sir, my point is this, that if that's all there is to you and me, we shouldn't need much of the substantial for what you might call the mere sole look of things, if you follow me, if we chose a chance to come back. When gone, I mean. Just enough, I suppose, to be obnoxious, as the Reverend used to say, to the naked eye. But all that, being as it may be, the whole thing had tidied over, and George was pretty nearly himself again when I began to notice something peculiar. At first, maybe, a little more than mere silence. 
There was a strain, so to speak, as you went about your daily doings, especially after dark, and I could see that even George had noticed it, and he had hardly noticed a black beetle on a pancake. And then came something you could put word to. I'd gone out one evening after a broiling hot day to get a little air. I was thinking over what a curious thing is how one man's poison is another man's meat. For the funeral over and all that, the old gentleman had thanked me for all I'd done. You see, what had gone before had been a hard break in his trust of a man, and he'd looked up from his bed at me almost with tears in his eyes. He said he wouldn't forget it. He used the word substantial, sir. And I ought by rights to have mentioned that he was taken ill the night of the inquest, a, a sore stroke, the doctor said, though he came round, I must say remarkably well considering his age. Well, I've been thinking all this over as I walked back to the house along the field path when I looked up as if at a call and saw what well, I take my oath. I never remembered to have seen there before a scarecrow. A scarecrow in the middle of the cornfield at the back of the vicarage. Nothing funny in that, you may say, but this was early September, and it didn't look like an old scarecrow either. It stood with its arms out and hat down over its eyes, bang in the middle of the field. I knew that field as well as I know my own face in the looking-glass. Then how could I have missed it? The following afternoon, I stepped upstairs to have a look at it from the windows. There was less heat haze or something, and I could see it clearer, but not quite clear enough. So I whipped along to the Reverend's study, him being still poor gentleman confined to his bed. In fact, he never got up from it. I whipped along, I say, to fetch his binoculars, and I fastened them on that scarecrow. You will hardly credit me, sir, when I say it didn't look quite real. I could watch it with the glasses as plain as if it had been in the touch of my hand, even to the hatband. It wasn't the first time I'd set eyes on the clothes, either, though I couldn't have laid name to them. And there was something in the appearance of the thing which wasn't what you'd expect of mere sticks and rags. I called George. His face was still discoloured, though his affair in the stable yard was now a good three weeks old. Take a squint through these glasses, George, I said. Tell me what you make of that thing over there. George was a slow, dawdly mug, if ever there was one. But he fixed the glasses at last. Why, Mr. Blake? It's a scarecrow. Does the air around it strike you as funny at all? I asked him. Quivering, in a manner of speaking. That's the heat, he said, but his lips trembled. Well, George, I said, heat or no heat, you or me must have a look at that thing closer. Not this afternoon, it's too late. But we didn't, sir, for lo and behold, when I got up next morning and went along the corridor to have another glance at it, it wasn't there. The scarecrow, sir, was vanished. Some farmer's lout, I thought to myself, must have moved the old mommet overnight. But that being so, what was it ever put up for? Harvest done and all that. I didn't go out that day, but all day long, and I'll vouch for it, the whole twenty acres of that field lay empty. And when the moon came up that evening, 
I took yet another squint through the glasses from the upper windows, and I'm ready to own that something inside of me gave a sort of hump so, when, large as life, I saw that the scarecrow was come back again. But what I saw the instant before I began to look, and to that I'd lay my affidavit, was something moving, and pretty rapid too, and it was only as I clapped the glasses onto it that it suddenly fixed itself into what I already supposed I should find it to be. I've noticed that before. It's your own mind that learns you before what you look at turns out to be what you expect. Else why should we be alarmed by this here solid sometimes? It all looks so, but is it? Well, sir, I must say that from that moment on, I didn't like the look of things. And never have I shared a meal so mum as when George and me had supper that evening. From being a hearty eater, his appetite was fallen almost to a cipher. It was while we sat there, alone in the servants' hall, that we heard some words said. Not what you could understand, but still words. I couldn't tell from where, except that it wasn't from the Reverend. George stopped munching, his face little short of green. But except for a cockling up inside of me, I didn't make any sign I'd heard. Lock-up time came at last, and George took his candle and went up to bed. Not quite as willing as usual, I fancied. As for me, I gave a last look in on the old gentleman. All well there, and him lying as peaceful as if the end had come already. Then, coming back along the corridor, I blew out my candle and stood waiting at the windows. The moon came streaming in, and outside was almost as bright as day. But there was nothing to be seen, nor heard neither. Yet it seemed that not more than one deep breath after I had closed my eyes in sleep that night that I was wide awake again. There was something sounding about the house that wasn't natural, and no mistake, as soon as I heard it, I was on with my tailcoat over my nightshirt in a jiffy. I'd fetched my winter coat too, this very coat on my back now, and with that over my arm I pushed open the door and looked in on George. Maybe he'd heard my coming. Maybe he'd heard the other. But there he was, sitting up in bed, the moonlight flooding in on his long white face. I said to him, "'What's wrong, George?' He sat looking at me with his mouth open, and I could see he was shaken to the very roots. Now, what I'd heard might be some animal, prowling around outside, or it might not. If not, and the house being exorcised, as I said, I had a kind of trust that what was there, if it was anything, couldn't get in. But naturally... I was in something of a fever to make sure. George, I said, it's up to us, our duty, George, to know what's what. So, if you'll take a look around on the outside, I'll have a search through on the inn. George went on looking at me, though he had by this time shuffled out of bed and into the overcoat I'd handed him. You don't think, Mr Blake, you don't think he's come back again? Who's come back, George, I asked. Why, won't we look through the glasses out in the field? He had his look. Well, George, I said, 
speaking as he might to a child. We know as our dead men tell no tales, let alone scarecrows then. All we got to do is to make sure. You do as you bid then, my lad. You go your ways and I'll go mine. I'd leave us not go down, Mr. Blake, he said. Leastways not alone. He said it'd be evens, not alone, Mr. Blake. What have you to fear, George, my lad? Man or spectre, the fault was none of yours. George buttoned up the coat, and the moon on his face gave him a queer look, far away like, as if all that there was of him, this world or the next, had come to keep him company. It was the last between us. He turned his back on me and went off out into the passage. As for myself, I didn't move for a bit. There wasn't any hurry that I could see. And then presently, what I heard was as though a voice had said something very sharp and bitter, then said no more. There came a sort of moan, then no more again. But by that time, I was on my way, on my rounds, inside the house, and when I got back to my bedroom again, everything was quiet. And I took it, of course, that George had got back safe to his. Since the fire had faded, the fish-like phosphorescence of the gas mantles had grown brighter, and this elderly man was looking at me out of his white, almost leper-like face in this faint gloom, as steadily as George must have been looking at him a few minutes before he had descended the back stairs of the vicarage, never, I gathered, to return. He wasn't found till morning, the old man said. Cold for hours, and precious little to show why. Did you manage to get a little sleep? He made no answer. Your share, I suppose, was quite a substantial one. Share? In the will. Now, sir, didn't I tell you myself that that, as it turned out, wasn't so? And I don't know, as what I did get has brought me anything much to boast about. I'm a free man, that's true. But for how long? He peered round and out of the door. And now in this world, you may not have one iota of harm to blame yourself for to yourself. There may still be misunderstandings, and them that have been deceived by them may be waiting for you in the next. So when it comes to what the captain of the Hesper... But at this moment, our tete-a-tete was interrupted by a young porter carrying a bucket of coal which he emptied onto the fire. Then he looked round. Me he passed over, but he greeted my fellow derelict as if he were an old acquaintance. Good evening, sir, he said in that slightly indulgent voice which suggests past favours rather easily earned. I didn't see you when I came in and was beginning to wonder where you'd got to. His patron smirked back at him as if any such trifling human attention was a peculiar solace. This time the porter caught my eye and his own was full of meaning. It was as if there was some ironical understanding between us which this third party was unlikely to share. I ignored it, rose to my feet. A train had come hooting into the station. It wasn't mine, but I preferred my own company just then. When I reached the door, I glanced back at Mr. Blake, sitting there in his great coat. With a mournful look, he seemed to be deploring the withdrawal of my tepid companionship. But in that dreadful, 
gaseous luminosity, there was nothing, so far as I could see, that any mortal man could by any possibility be afraid of, alive or dead. So I left him to the porter, and, as yet, we have not met again. My old friend, the Count, as we used to call him, made very strange acquaintances at times. Let but a man have plausibility, a point of view, an enthusiasm, he would find in him an eager listener. I confess, however, that these cronies of his were rather disconcerting at times, and I own that seeing him one afternoon in the high street with a companion even more than usually voluble and odd, I own I crossed the road to avoid meeting the pair. But the Count's eyes had been too sharp for me. You remember that rather out-of-the-world friend of mine yesterday that so shocked your spruce proprieties, Richard, he said, as we walked together. Well, I'll tell you a story. As closely as I can recall this story of the Count's childhood, I have related it. The house of my first remembrance the house that to my last hour on earth will seem home to me, stood on the verge of a wide heath. The house, the garden, the deep orchard, all had been a wedding gift to my mother from a great-aunt. I remember every room of the old house. The steep stairs, the cool, apple-scented pantry. But best of all, I remember the unmeasured splendour of the heath, with its gorse, and its deep canopy of sunny air. My father's will, his word, his caprice, his frown, these were the tables of the law in that small household. To my mother, he was the very meaning of her life. But nothing satisfied him. He must needs be at an extreme, and if he was compelled to conceal his discontent, there was something so bitter and imperious in his silence so scornful a sarcasm in his speech that we could scarcely bear it. I remember one summer's evening we had been gathering strawberries in the garden. I carried a little basket and went rummaging under the aromatic leaves. Martha was busy beside me, and in a wild race with my mother, my father helped us pick. At every ripest one, he took her in his arms to force it between her lips. And when the sun went down, he took my mother on his arm, and we all trooped together back into the cool, dusky house. As we passed into the gloaming, I saw my mother stoop impulsively and kiss his arm. He brushed her off impatiently and went into his study. I think she was happier when my father was away, for then, free from anxiety to be forever pleasing his variable moods, she could entertain herself with hopes and preparations for his return. So time went on. Yet, it seemed, as each month passed by, the house was not so happy as before. Something was fading and vanishing that would not return. On Guy Fawkes' day, Martha told me that a new household had moved into the village on the other side of the heath. After that, my father stayed away from us but seldom.
At first my mother showed her pleasure in a thousand ways, with ribbons in her hair, with new songs, though she had but a small thin voice. But by and by, when evening after evening was spent by my father away from home, she began to be depressed. Her anxious face, the incessant interrogation of her eyes, vexed and irritated him beyond measure. "'Where does my father go after dinner?' I asked Martha one night, when my mother was in the room. "'Shh, now, Master Nicholas, didn't you hear what your mamma said? "'She's vexed, poor lady, and Master's never spending a whole day at home. "'Nothing but them cards, cards, cards every night at Mr. Gray's. "'But she doesn't mean to speak unkindly. "'It's a terrible scourge, his jealousy, Master Nicholas, "'and not manly to give it cause.' "'A few days later I was sitting with my mother in her parlour, "'when my father entered and bade me put on my hat and muffler. "'He's going to pay a call with me,' he explained curtly. "'As I left the room, I heard my mother say, "'To your friends at the Grange, I suppose.' "'You may suppose whatever you please,' he answered. "'The room in which the card-player sat was very low-sealed. "'A piano stood near the window.' a rosewood table with a work-basket upon it by the fireplace, and some little distance away a green card-table with candles burning. After some while the door opened and a lady appeared. This was Mr. Gray's sister, Jane, I learnt. She seated herself at her work-table and drew me to her side. Well, so this is Nicholas, she said, smiling. How very kind of you to come to see me. I looked into her eyes and knew we were friends. She smiled again. Now let me see, I have three different kinds of cake because, I thought, I cannot in the least tell which kind he'll like best. Come, you shall choose. She rose and opened a narrow cupboard. I remember the cakes to this day. Little oval shortbreads stamped with a beehive, custards and mince pies. I took a mince pie and sat down on a footstool near Miss Gray, and she talked to me while she worked. Her voice was so quiet and musical, her neck so graceful. I thought her very beautiful, admiring especially her dark eyes when she smiled brightly and yet half sadly at me. I promised, moreover, that if she would meet me on the heath, I would show her Miller's pool. "'Well, Jane, what do you think of my son?' said my father when we were about to leave. She bent over me and squeezed a lucky fourpence piece into my hand. I was looking at my father as she was caressing me, and I fancied a faint sneer passed over his face. But when we'd come out of the house onto the heath, in the bare, keen night. Never before had he seemed so wonderful a companion. He told me little stories. He began a hundred and finished none. Yet with the stars above us, they seemed a string of beads, all of bright colours. But when we were come to the house gates, he suddenly fell silent, turned an instant, and stared over the heath. How weary, flat, stale, he began and broke off. Listen to me, Nicholas. You must grow up a man. A man, you understand. 
No vaporings, no posings, no caprices. It's your one and only chance in this unfaltering scheme. He scanned my face closely. You have your mother's eyes, he said musingly. And that... That's no joke. He pushed open the gate and we went in. My mother was sitting before a dying fire. Well, Nicholas, did you play cards with the gentleman? I talked to Miss Gray, I said. Really, said my mother, raising her eyebrows. And who is Miss Gray? Uh, Mr. Gray's sister. Not his wife, then? I looked towards my father in doubt. <laughs> you little fool, he said to my mother with a laugh. What a sharpshooter. My mother rose, and with a sob she hurried out. My father stood very still, and then with a sigh he sat down at my mother's writing table and scribbled a few words on a slip of paper. There, Nicholas, just tap on your mother's door with that. Good night, old fellow. I hastened upstairs and delivered the message. My mother was crying when she opened the door. But presently, afterwards, I heard her run down quickly, and in a while my father and mother came upstairs together, arm in arm, and by her light talk and laughter, you might suppose she had no knowledge of care or trouble at all. Never afterwards did I see so much gaiety and youthfulness in my mother's face as when she sat next morning with us at breakfast. My father seemed to find as much pleasure or relief in her good spirits as I did, and to delight in exercising his ingenuity to quicken her humour. It was but a transient morning of sunshine, however, and as the brief and sombre day waned, its gloom pervaded the house. In the evening, my father left us to our solitude as usual. On St. Stephen's Day, I went to Miller's Pool. I was stooping down at the edge, breaking the splinters of ice, when I heard a voice calling me. It was Jane Grey, walking on the heath with my father. So you see, I have kept my promise, she said. But you promised to come by yourself. Well, so I will then. She turned to my father. Nicholas shall take me home to tea, and you can call for him in the evening. That is, if you are coming. Do you care whether I come or not? He said moodily. You are my friend. Of course I care. He scrutinised her through half-closed lids. His face was haggard, gloomy with ennui. How you harp on the word, you punctilious Jane. Do you suppose I'm still in my teens? It amuses me to hear you women talk. It's little you ever really feel. I don't think I'm quite without feeling, she replied. You are a little difficult, you know. Difficult? It's age, my dear Jane. Age. It turns one to stone. With you young people, life's a dream. Ask Nicholas here. He shrugged. But one wakes on a devilish hard pallet. She continued to smile, yet with tears in her eyes. You asked me to be fearless, sincere, to speak my heart. I wonder, do you? The truth is, Jane, my father said slowly, I am past sincerity now.
And as for heart, it is a quite discredited organ at forty. And when youth and sentiment are gone, why, go to, dear lady. Existence proves nothing but brazen inanity afterwards. But there's always that turning left to the dullest and dustiest road. Oblivion. Take care of her, Nicholas. Au revoir. Upon my word, I almost wish it was goodbye. He turned with an affected laugh and left us. What does my father mean by wishing us goodbye? I asked. My companion bent down and put her hands on my shoulders. My dear Nicholas, you must be a good son to your mother. Brave and kind, will you? He hardly ever speaks to mother now. She pressed her lips to my cheek. We must do our best, mustn't we? And then we took hands and ran till we were out of breath, towards the distant lights of the thorns. I had been some time in bed when my mother came into my room. Where have you been all evening? she said. Miss Gray asked me to stay to tea. Did I give you permission to go to tea with Miss Gray? I made no answer. If you go to that house again, I shall beat you. You hear me, Nicholas? Alone or with your father, if you go there again, I shall beat you. I didn't reply. But when my mother had gone, without kissing me, I cried noiselessly on into my pillow. Life had become a little colder and stranger. Hardly a week passed now without some bitter quarrel. On St. Valentine's Day, things came to a worse pass than ever. It had always been my father's custom to hang my mother a valentine on the handle of her parlour door, a string of pearls, a fan, whatever it might be. She came down early this morning and sat looking out at the falling snow. He took no notice of her. I think he had not really forgotten the day, for I found long afterwards in his bureau a bracelet, purchased but a week before, with her name written inside the case. Yet it seemed to be the absence of this little gift that had driven my mother beyond reason. Towards evening, tired of the house, I played for a while in the snow. At nightfall, I went in, and in the dark heard angry voices. My father came out of the dining room and looked at me in silence. My mother followed him. It shall learn to hate you, she cried. I will teach it every moment to hate and despise you as I, oh, I hate and despise you. My father looked at her calmly and profoundly. Very well, then. You have chosen, he said coldly. It has always lain with you. You have exaggerated, you have raved, and now you have said what can never be forgotten. Pray do not imagine, however, that I am defending myself. I have nothing to defend. I think of no one but myself, no one. Perhaps, indeed, you yourself... Well, life is... I have done. So be it. He stood looking out of the door. You see, it's snowing, he said, as if to himself. All day long the snow had been falling continuously. 
My father glanced back for an instant into the house, and, as I fancy, regarded me with a kind of strange, close earnestness. But he went out, and his footsteps were instantly silenced. My mother stumbled to the door. Arthur, Arthur, she cried. It's St. Valentine's Day. That was all I meant. Come back, come back. But perhaps my father was already out of hearing. As far back as memory carried me, it had been our custom to make a Valentine's feast. This same anniversary had, last year, brought about a tender reconciliation between my father and mother, after a quarrel that meant how little then. And I remember on this day to have seen the first fast-sealed buds upon the almond tree. When I went to the dining room later, my mother was kneeling by the fireside, gazing into the flames. Martha knocked at the door when the clock struck eight. Dinner is ready, ma'am. My mother glanced at the clock. Just a little while longer, tell Mrs. Ryder. Your master will be home in a minute. She rose and placed the claret in the hearth. Did you hear anything, Nicholas? Run to the door and listen. It stopped snowing, I said, peering out into the darkness. But there isn't anybody there, mother. The hours passed heavily from quarter on to quarter. Already midnight would be the next hour to be chimed. I was still hungry and very tired. The candles began to burn low. Mrs. Ryder retired with Martha. They left me, I think, to be my mother's company. We shared the steaming wine together when they were gone. We said very little, but I looked softly into her grey, childish eyes, and we kissed one another, kneeling there together before the fire. But by and by, in the silent house, drowsiness vanquished me. I began to nod, and very soon dreams stalked in, mingling with reality. It was early morning when I awoke, cold and miserable in my uncomfortable resting place. My mother was still asleep. I touched her sleeve, and the lids drew back from her eyes. Her face clouded instantly. What? Nothing? Nothing? And suddenly, in a gush of agony, remembrance of the night returned to her. She hid her face in her hands, rocking her body gently to and fro. I returned to the table, on which was set out the mockery of our Valentine feast. I put a handful of biscuits in my pocket, for a determination had taken me to go out on the heath. A project was also forming in my mind of walking over to the Thorns. I would tell Miss Grey all about my adventure of the night spent in the dining room. So, moving stealthily, I stole unnoticed from the room and ran joyously out into the wintry morning. Already dawn was clear and high in the sky, and snow lay crisp across every surface. As I went on my way, munching my biscuits, I brooded deliciously on the breakfast which Miss Grey would doubtless give me, and almost forgot the troubled house I had left behind. At length I climbed a smooth ridge and looked down. Before me grew a crimson hawthorn tree that often in past Aprils I had used for a green tent from the showers. But now it was a long expanse of unshadowed whiteness. Nearby I perceived a figure stretched out along the snow and knew instinctively 
that it was my father lying there. The sight did not then dismay me. I felt no sorrow, but stood beside the body, regarding it only with a kind of earnest curiosity, yet perhaps with a remote pity, too, that he could not see me in the beautiful morning. His grey hand lay arched in the snow. A smear of dried blood showed on his darkened face. I understood that he was dead, and had already begun speculating on what would happen in the house now that he was gone, his influence, his authority, his discord. I remembered, too, that I was alone, was master of this immense secret, and that I must go home and tell my mother. My thoughts were suddenly broken in on by Martha Rod. She stood looking down on me from the ridge from which I had but just now descended. Look, Martha, look, I cried as she approached. I found him in the snow. He's dead. And suddenly a bond seemed to snap in my heart. The tears gushed into my eyes, and I clung to the poor girl, sobbing bitterly. Oh, Master Nicholas, she cried. What will your poor mamma do now, and him gone? My father's body was brought home and laid in my mother's little parlour. The house was darkened. My mother was ill. And for some inexplicable reason, I connected her illness with the bevy of gentlemen dressed in black who came one morning to the house and walked away together over the heath. Finally, Mrs. Marshall drove up one afternoon from Islington, and by the bundles she had brought with her, I knew that she was come, as once before in my experience, to stay. I was playing on the morrow in the hall when I heard Mrs. Marshall and Mrs. Ryder gossiping on their way up from the kitchen. No, Mrs. Marshall, nothing, Mrs. Ryder was saying. Not one word. And now the poor dear lady left quite alone. I knew to my sorrow that there was words in the house, but there, wheresoever you be, there's that. Wasn't there talk of some... Talk, Mrs. Marshall. I scorn the word. A pinch of truth in a hogshead of falsehood. But then I was discovered, crouched on the stairs. And this is the poor fatherless mannequin, I suppose, said Mrs. Marshall. Well, now, and don't you remember me, little man? He ought to now. He's a good boy, said Mrs. Ryder, and I hope and pray he'll be a comfort to his poor widowed mother, if so be. They glanced earnestly at one another, and Mrs. Marshall drew a big leather purse from her pocket and selected a bright halfpenny piece. I make no doubt he will, poor mite, she said cheerfully. I took the halfpenny in silence, and the two women went on upstairs. In the afternoon... I went out onto the heath with a shovel, intent on building a great tomb in the snow. I laboured very busily, shoveling, moulding, stamping. So intent was I that I did not see Miss Grey until she was beside me. Nicholas? She sat on my shapeless mound of snow and took me by the hand. Then she drew up her veil, and I saw her face pale and darkened, her dark eyes gravely gazing into mine. 
My poor, poor Nicholas. What can I say? She drew back and looked out over the heath towards the house. They've put my father in the little parlour. In his coffin, of course. You know he's dead. And Mrs Marshall's come. She gave me a halfpenny. I took it out of my pocket and showed it to her. That's very nice, she said. And look, I'm going to give you a little keepsake too, just between you and me. It was a small silver box that she drew from her muff, and embossed in the lid was a crucifix. Now, who's given you this, she said softly, putting the box into my hand. You. Your friend, Jane Grey, she said. And now, tell me which room is... is the little parlour. Is it that window at the corner? I shook my head. No, it's at the back. Would you like to see my father? She started, her dark eyes dwelling strangely on mine. But Nicholas, you poor lamb, where... If you were to come this evening, I would be playing in the hall. Nobody would see you. Oh, what are you saying? She stood up, drawing down her veil. But I'll come, I'll come. We can both still, still be loyal to him, can't we, Nicholas? She walked away quickly. I looked at my silver box with great satisfaction, and after opening it, put it in my pocket and continued my building for a while. But now zest for it was gone, and I began to feel cold as darkness gathered. So I went home. I ate my tea in solitude. A peculiar, suppressed stir was in the house. I wondered what could be the cause of it, and began to be afraid of my project being discovered. Nonetheless, I was playing in the evening, as I had promised, close to the hall door. Run down to the kitchen, dearie, said Martha. Her cheeks were flushed. She was carrying a can of steaming water. You must keep very, very quiet this evening and go to bed like a good boy and perhaps tomorrow I'll tell you a great secret. She kissed me hastily and hurried away. Almost as soon as she was gone, I heard a light rap on the door. It seemed that Jane Grey had brought in with her the cold and freshness of the woods. I led the way down the corridor into the small, silent room. The air was still languid with the perfume of flowers. I'm sorry, I said, but they've nailed it down. Martha says the men came this afternoon. Miss Grey took a little bunch of snowdrops from her bosom and hid them among the wreaths of flowers, and she knelt down with a small silver cross pressed to her lips. And while I watched her praying, I listened to the quiet footsteps passing to and fro in the room above. Suddenly, the silence was broken by a small, continuous, angry crying. Miss Grey looked up. What was that? I stared at her. It sounds just like a little baby, I said. She crossed herself hastily and rose. Nicholas? she said in a strange, bewildered voice. She looked at me lovingly, then went out as she had entered.
I did not so much as peep into the darkness after her, but busy with a hundred thoughts, returned to my play. Long past my usual bedtime, as I sat sipping a mug of hot milk before the kitchen fire, Martha told me her secret. So, my impossible companion in the high street yesterday was own and only brother to your crazy old friend, Richard, said the Count. His only brother, he added, in a muse. The Almond Tree by Walter de la Mare was read by Julian Wadham, abridged by Doreen Estel and produced by Lawrence Jackson. Well, after the weekend, one to set a reminder for, Isaac Asimov's iRobot is here on 4 Extra at the same time. Best remembered today as the notorious producer of over a hundred cheaply made exploitation movies. When I was young, my parents had a book. Folklore, Myths and Legends of Britain. It had a black cloth cover and a gold-embossed image of a Viking with beard and horned helmet on the front. Inside, a cornucopia of stories that had endured for 2,000 years. It was in these pages that I first came across the classic English folktale The Mistletoe Bride. Grisly, oddly compelling, it's the sort of tale that sticks in the imagination. Several of the pieces I've written were inspired by the memory of those long, happy teenage days of reading back in the 1970s. Among them, two versions of the story of the bride who disappeared on her wedding day. This is the first stranded, out there on my own. The car didn't break down, of course. The fog lifted, nothing happened. I've never forgotten that journey and the illogical threat of something lurking in the darkness. On Harting Hill... South Harting, Sussex, October 1961. That afternoon I was late getting away. There was a light drizzle and the road was slippery and wet. All the same, I was comfortable enough in my Morris Minor, the heating rattling on full, rhyme on the inside of the windscreen as I inched forward in a stream of cars, leaving London by the old Portsmouth Road. A friend from my school days had invited me for the weekend, a few like-minded chaps, Bill said, all of them single or, like me, recently divorced. All very informal. Country walks and a pub lunch. A few hands of cards. Traffic's always bad on Fridays, Bill said. All the weekenders choking up the road. Adding to their number, I'd said. And we'd both laughed in that slightly awkward way of friends who used to know each other well. I tell you this... So you understand there was nothing out of the ordinary. October the 27th, 1961. An unremarkable Friday afternoon. Once I was out of London, I had a clear run of it. Traffic started to thin out at Guildford. One by one, the commuter husbands hurrying home to their wives. A closed-up garage, street after anonymous street of modern new houses. The grey afternoon sky turned pink then an inky blue. I made good time. Even so, it was already past nine o'clock by the time I turned off and started to make my way across country through the Sussex Downs. I stopped in South Harting to stretch my legs, tempted by the lights of the White Hart. Bill had promised a scratch meal, and I didn't want to hold things up, 
So I lit a cigarette, walked up the high street towards the church and back. The air was filled with a scent of coal fires and wood, wet earth and ploughed fields. Squares of light from kitchen windows, an untenanted schoolhouse, a normal, sleepy English village. I got back in the car and set off again. Fallen leaves on the pavements, a patchwork of colours of burgundy and copper and gold lit by the car's headlamps, a row of workmen's cottages, then the utter blackness of Harting Hill. I fixed my eyes ahead, trying not to notice the long tall trunks of the high trees looming over the road, or how the ground fell sharply away to the left. I'm an ordinary man. No imagination, my ex-wife used to say, proudly at first, then later with disappointment. But as I drove on, it seemed to me the darkness took on a life of its own, the glint of sharp eyes in the undergrowth, a fox or a badger, vibrated with menace. It was getting colder too. Pockets of low cloud hung in the hollow spaces between the army of pines and drifted across the road, as if pushed by some unseen hand. Faces, shapes in the white mist. I switched on my fog lamps. It made little difference. I still could see no more than six inches in front of me, and the hypnotic swish of the windscreen wipers made my head spin. Right, then right again, following the turn of the road. The engine was straining. Left and left again, second gear down to first, another tight bend. The endlessness of the surrounding woodland, another half-formed face staring hollow out of the mist. Except this time, it was real. Flesh and blood. A girl, standing right in the middle of the road. And I was going to hit her. I slammed on the brakes. No! Did I shout the warning out loud? I don't know. Only that I stamped again on the brake. Hands clenched, shoulders braced. I felt the back wheels spin, slipping, skidding, sliding. Get out of the way! A thud beneath the car, and I was thrown forward, hard against the steering wheel. After noise. Silence. It took me a moment to realise the Morris Minor had come to a halt, and, apart from a sharp pain in my ribs, I was all right. But what about her? I fumbled with the catch and clambered out of the car into the night. I could barely see my hand in front of my face. Are you all right? The fog shrouded everything. I traced my way round the car, hand over hand on the bonnet, then crouched down to look underneath the chassis. There was nothing except a heavy branch caught in the front number plate. Thank God. My relief was short-lived. I could see how sheer the drop was. What if I'd sent her over the edge? I called out again. Where are you? Then I caught sight of her standing in a gap between the trees, hardly visible in the mist, hardly there at all. What in God's name are you playing at? I said. Out here alone at this time of night. She was very young, no more than 17 or 18, and somehow that shocked me as much as anything. Thin arms and legs, long drab hair framing a drawn pale face. A cheap dress with a narrow belt and old-fashioned shoes. You could have been killed! The girl stepped back, as if now only noticing me for the first time. Such dark eyes. No light in them. Yes, she said a quiet voice, barely audible. Well, I said, she looked such a sorry little thing. 
I waited, expecting her to explain why she was here or where she was going, but didn't say anything more. Here, I said, taking off my jacket and draping it over her narrow shoulders. You're shaking. She didn't thank me. In shock, I supposed. Did your lift let you down? She didn't look the type to have a boyfriend, but what did I know? I pulled the branch out from under the car. Well, I said again, no real harm done. All I wanted was to get onto Bill's, but in all conscience, I couldn't leave her out here on her own. You'd better let me drop you home, I said. Where'd you live? Harting? The slightest nod of her head. Harting it is, I said, hoping the car would start. I'm Tom, by the way. And you are? Mary, she whispered, after another long pause. Mary Starr. Pretty name, I said, more to fill the silence than anything else. I was conscious of her hollow eyes on the back of my head as we made our way back down the hill. I glanced at her in my driving mirror. Won't be long. It was cold inside the car. I fiddled with the dial on the heater, but it wasn't working. Smoke, I said, feeling more and more uncomfortable. Mary gave no sign she'd heard. You won't mind if I do. I shrugged and lit a cigarette anyway. The drizzle had stopped, but I was still relieved when I saw the lights of the village. I glanced again in the mirror. Mary sat motionless, swamped by my jacket. Will this do? Irritated by her silence, I pulled over by the telephone box where I'd stopped earlier and killed the engine. I twisted round in my seat to ask her again. Here all right? She wasn't there. The car was empty. She'd vanished. Mary? I got out and looked up and down the street. It was deserted. Mary! I shouted again. I walked into the ship inn. After everything I'd done for her, I wasn't inclined to let it go. It wasn't just the jacket, but my wallet and pocket diary too. Anyone know where the Star family lives? I asked. Is it memory playing tricks that recalls an intake of breath? Sharp glances crossing from the landlord to the old men sitting by the fire. It's Mary I'm after, I added. Again, someone muttered, but a glare from his companion silenced him and he hunched back into his beer. Over the road, ten yards up on the right, said the landlord. End of the path. Moments later, I was knocking on the door of the last in a row of flint cottages, then stood back to wait for someone to answer. Mrs Starr? I asked, when a woman appeared. Thin, and with an air of defeat, she had the look of someone old before her time. Sorry to disturb you so late, but I gave a lift to your... to Mary. A flash of alarm, then despair. From inside the small house, a man's rough voice slurred with drink. Who is it? Go away, she whispered, trying to close the door. Leave us alone. I'm sorry, I said, pricked by her rudeness. I obviously didn't explain properly. I picked up Mary on Harting Hill, a misunderstanding, I'm sure, but when she got out of the car, she forgot to give my jacket back. Five minutes ago, ten at most. She's not here, the woman said. Again, the drunk bellowed from the front room. Who the hell is it? Go, please, she said, desperate this time. 
I didn't intend to cause trouble, but I wanted an answer. If not here, then where might she be? For an instant, the haunted look in her eyes gave way to something else. Resignation? Sadness? Mrs. Starr? The church, she said softly. Where else? This caught me out. At this time of night, but she had already shut the door. I heard the sound of a bolt being shot, then a heart-rending sob. I raised my hand to knock again, then let it drop. The woman was clearly terrorised by her brute of a husband. Perhaps Mary was too scared to go home. I headed back to the church. One of the black wrought-iron gates into the cemetery was ajar, as if someone had recently slipped through. I tried the door to the church, but it was locked, so I skirted round the building. Neat headstones, yew and mulberry bushes. Against the wall, a row of older ruined gravestones, like broken teeth, seemed to be sinking back into the earth. Then I heard a rustling sound. Leaves underfoot? Someone on the gravel path? Mary? Mary, is that you? I walked towards the sound and found myself in a secluded, overgrown corner of the churchyard. I could see no one, just shadows in the intermittent moonlight. But there was something moving, swaying in the breeze. I went closer and saw my jacket was hanging from one of the stones. Slowly I lifted the material to read the inscription, Mary Starr, 3rd of October 1931 to 27th of October 1951 in God's care. Bill said they'd found me there the next morning. His number was on the map lying on the passenger seat, so they called him. I had a slight fever from spending the night out of doors, but otherwise I was none the worse. A local had seen my car still parked in the square, remembered me asking for directions to the star's house and put two and two together. It wasn't the first time, you see. Later, Bill told me the whole story, Mary had been sighted before, always on the same stretch of road, always on the anniversary of her death. Without her father's permission, she'd gone out with a boy. When he wouldn't take no for an answer, he put her out of the car. It had been a terrible night, rain and mudslides, so perhaps she'd lost her footing and fallen. Or perhaps she was the victim of a hit and run. No one knew for sure. A fair few years have passed since then. I married again, happily this time, and we have a daughter. My wife says I'm overprotective, and perhaps I am. But do you blame me? I don't believe in ghosts, never did. All the same, if ever I'm passing through South Harting, I stop at the church to lay flowers on the grave of a girl I once met. On Harting Hill by Kate Moss was read by Robert Glenister, directed by Celia de Wolf, and was a peer production for BBC Radio 4 Extra. Tomorrow's story by Kate Moss is Red Letter Day, in which a grief-stricken mother goes on a journey in search of peace. It's read by Claire Skinner. This is BBC Radio 4 Extra.
Now, from 1973, in Sounds Natural, Derek Nimmo discusses with Derek Jones his interest in wildlife, both at home and abroad, and chooses some recordings from the BBC's collection of wildlife sounds. Hello, and today in Sounds Natural, a story. In 1989, we bought a tiny house in the shadow of the medieval city walls of Carcassonne. Luck and happenstance took us there, but I felt immediately at home, as if I belonged. Over many years, this obsession inspired a series of historical time-slip novels, Labyrinth, Sepulchre and Citadel, each of them a love letter to Carcassonne and its history. The trilogy was published between 2005 and 2012, but this story came earlier. It was my very first attempt to capture the particular tragic beauty of the landscape and mythology of the Languedoc. An early hint, if you will, of the novelist I was to become. Red Letter Day. Montségur, the French Pyrenees, March 2001. You'll never forget him, they'd told her, but it'll get easier. Time is a great healer, they'd said. Perhaps you'll even have another baby one day. Three years. If anything, Claire's grief had become more acute. Her sense of loss more profound. Memories of her son's tiny, lifeless body in his cot. The dead weight of him in her arms haunted her. Claire knew her heart would never mend, nor did she wish it to. All she wanted was to not feel anything, to not think anything, to close her eyes and see only white space. With that acceptance had come first relief, then a sense of purpose. The decision taken made things easier. The place and time had been harder to choose. Claire wanted to be away from her everyday life so as not to burden her family and friends who tried so hard. Then the answer. Years before they'd gone to the Ariège on holiday, Claire had been captivated by the story of the medieval Cathars, had fallen in love with the tragic history of Montségur, the mountain citadel in the Pyrenees where the rebels of the Albigensian crusade had made their final stand. One of her own ancestors, it turned out, among them. Mont Salvationis. A place of hope and revelation and salvation. A place to live and to die. A place of myth, certainly. The ruined fortress perched impossibly high above the village of Montségur. Three sides of the castle hewn out of the mountainside itself. The idea took root until, in the end, Montségur was the only place Claire could imagine finding peace. Today was the day. Thursday, 16th of March, the anniversary of the day in 1244, when the Cathars had finally come down from their mountain refuge. 200 believers had chosen death by fire rather than recant their faith. Today was a red-letter day, the sort of day to be picked out in gold leaf and crimson ink on parchment. Today, Claire would stand in the place where, in the poet's words... Prayer had been valid, and make her choice. Three years. It is time now to make the journey. Claire left Carcassonne at dawn, driving south towards the foothills of the Pyrenees. The air was soft and the sky a gentle pink.
At Limuth, the sun grew watery, less definite. At Quizar, the pale spring mist turned to rain. As she turned onto the winding switchback road into the mountains, the rain was turning to hail. The temperature plummeted. By the time Claire reached the village below Montségur, sleet was hitting the windscreen. Visibility was down to a few feet, and the mountain, towering over the houses, was shrouded in a mantle of thick white fog. She laced up her hiking boots, put on her gloves, and got out of the car. Her feet crunched on the shards of ice on the ground, but all other sound was muffled. Wisps of smoke snaked out of chimneys, evidence of the presence of others behind shuttered doors, but the streets were deserted. Whichever direction she faced, she seemed to be heading into a biting wind. Claire pulled her red duffel coat tight around her, pushed her hands deeper into her pockets and walked on. It was too early for lunch, but the sign outside the restaurant said ouvert and Claire found the door was unlocked. Warm air rushed out to greet her, rubbing against her cold hands and cheeks. She stepped inside and stamped the snow from her boots. Hello? Silence. No clatter of pans or babble of conversation. No smell of food cooking. No signs of life at all. She walked to the top of the stairs and called out again, S'il vous plaît? Still nothing. Claire found herself standing in a large, pleasant dining room, exposed stone walls and wooden beams and waxed floors. A fire was burning fiercely in the hearth. Rows of polished refectory tables, each seating ten laid for lunch. Knives and forks, bowls of salt, oil and vinegar. At a smaller table set beneath the window was a round wooden board with a generous wedge of contal, thick slabs of cured mountain ham and tomatoes, and a wicker basket of bread. Claire pulled off a corner and ate it. Fresh. Pain du matin. Not yesterday's stale baguette. As if someone had known she was coming. Il y a quelqu'un? No one answered. With a last glance at the door, Claire sat down. There was bound to be a simple explanation. No doubt the owner had popped out to run some errand or another. She could settle with him when he came back. She was astonished to discover she was hungry, properly hungry for the first time in three years. She smiled. How appropriate that here, at the end of things, at the top of the world, her emotions should start to thaw and come back to life. Claire had no memory of laying her head down on her arms only that she had slept. For a moment when she woke, she felt calm. Then the familiar weight of grief pressed down on her chest, as always. Different today, though. This was her red-letter day. She looked out and saw the weather had cleared. The snow and mist had gone. White clouds were scudding across a piercingly blue sky and a warm sun was casting shadows on the ground. Claire was surprised the owner still hadn't come back, but she was keen to be gone before her courage deserted her, so didn't want to wait any longer. She put a 20 euro note on the table, then emptied the rest of the contents of her purse on the table. She had no more need of money, and besides, she wanted them to know, whoever they were, that she had felt welcome. She hurried down the stairs and out into the cold, exhilarating air. The streets were still empty. Once or twice she thought she heard whispering, 
a woman's voice carried on the wind, but when she turned, there was no one there. Claire parked in the car park, leaving the keys in the ignition, then walked to the foot of the mountain and looked up. She was here. She'd made it. Here, she felt the presence of the past all around. Benign ghosts who understood her purpose and had come to keep her company on her journey. In her mind's eye, she could imagine other women who had stood here before her, mothers who had lived and loved and died in the shadow of the mountain. On the lower slopes, Claire stopped at the small stone steel on the field of the burned, which marked the place where the condemned Cathars had walked into the flames. Tributes had been laid around the base. Flowers, scraps of poetry, ribbons, personal offerings left by those who had been here before her, a pair of tiny knitted blue boots for a baby, blue for a boy. Claire crouched down and picked them up, wishing she'd thought to bring something too to mark the moment, a photograph of her son. She followed a narrow track covered in ice and fallen leaves, the last vestiges of winter. The path turned and suddenly she was out in the open, way above the tree line. Below she could see the road snaking through the patchwork of white fields and in the distance the great wall of the Pyrenees that divided France from Spain. Higher and higher still, leaving the world far behind, up through the clouds until her breath tore in her chest, but she kept going until, at last, she reached the great gate. Claire was suddenly reluctant to break the spell and enter. She feared the voices in her head would be too strong, or, worse, that she would not hear them at all, but there could be no turning back. She steeled herself, then stepped through the low, wide arch into the ruins of Montségur. It was much smaller and more confined within the walls than she'd imagined. She'd hoped to feel an immediate connection, a sense of homecoming or proof that she'd made the right decision, but she felt nothing. An absence of emotion, neither good nor bad. There was no beauty here, no mystery, just an empty shell of stone and rock. She began to explore, tracing the boundaries of the citadel, and only then did she notice she was not alone. Someone was standing on the very top of the wide outer wall of the citadel, a woman with black hair, wearing a long red coat that reached almost to the ground. Claire was surprised they hadn't passed one another on the path, and couldn't work out how the woman had managed to get up to that section of the wall at all. There were stone steps built into the wall, but they stopped halfway, as if two different workmen, one starting at the top, one at the bottom, had failed to meet. Claire shielded her eyes. There was something about the quality of the woman's stillness that gave the impression she was waiting for something or someone. Her outline was clearer now silhouetted against the bright March sky. She was about the same height and build as Claire, although her clothes were oddly old-fashioned. A moss-green dress hung beneath the hem of the red cloak, not a coat at all. Claire felt a sudden, fierce need to talk to her fellow pilgrim, but didn't want to startle her by calling out. The top of the wall would be icy, slippery, and there were no railings she could see, 
She walked to the broken steps. She pushed her fingers into the crevices looking for gaps in the stone, then forced her unwieldy boots into the cracks in the rock and slowly began to scale the wall. Luck, determination, grace, something carried her over the chasm that yawned between the lower and upper levels until she was standing beside the woman. I've come, she heard herself say. I'm here. The woman did not turn, and she had pulled her hood over her head so Claire couldn't see her face. Even so, she sensed she was smiling. At last, she murmured, à la parfum. She stretched out a thin white hand to Claire. Claire hesitated, then took it. Together, they stepped out into the sky. As they fell, the woman's hood fell back from her face. Claire smiled at the sight of her own features looking back at her. Her ancestor long dead? Or her old self? Eyes bright with hope. The person she had been before grief had stolen her life from her. Claire was home. No more past or future now. Only an everlasting present. The hire car was found the following day, half buried in the snow. No one understood how Claire had reached Montségur in the first place. The blizzard had been one of the worst in living memory, shutting all roads in and out of the village for two days from the evening of the 15th of March. Claire's body was never found, even though they searched for weeks. Her diary, however, was discovered beneath a table in a local restaurant lying open on the page for Friday the 16th of March. Since the owner and his wife had been away all winter, they couldn't account for how it came to be there. There was no suicide note, though all the signs were clear enough. There were only two words written on the page. Mon salvationis. But the date was ringed in red. Red Letter Day was read by Claire Skinner and written and abridged by Kate Moss. The producer was Celia DeWolf and it was a peer production for BBC Radio. We have another story from the collection tomorrow. This story, another of the Sussex stories, was inspired by West Dean House just outside Chichester, once the country home of Edward James. A great benefactor and patron of the arts, dance, sculpture and painting in particular, James was a significant supporter of the Surrealists and in the early years of the 20th century, West Dean played host to some of the greatest artists of the time. When James died in 1984, he bequeathed West Dean a state to be, as he put it, an Eden for the arts. The flint-faced house is still at the heart of the college, brimful with wonderful curios and oddities. Huge glass cases of stuffed birds, trophies of big game hunts, Cecil Beaton's photograph of James's wife, the ballerina Tilly Losh, Chelichu's iconic painting of the author Edith Sitwell, Darley's famous Mae West lips sofa, as well as a magnificent five-storey doll's house, dating from the 17th century, it said, but anywhere in the world. Imagining what Westine might have been like in its Edwardian heyday and just after the First World War, full of life and colour and weekend house parties, that was the starting point for this story. The House on the Hill, Dean Hall, Sussex, October 1922. In the House on the Hill there was a light 
a single flickering flame, like a solitary candle burning. Daphne looked out across the park from her first-floor bedroom, trying to get her bearings. The London train had been late getting in, so she'd barely had time to say her hello to her cousin Teddy before being shown to her room. It surprised her that there was another so substantial house within the grounds. It looked both rather splendid and rather isolated, set on the ridge between two clusters of trees. She shivered, but lingered a moment longer at the stone sill, mesmerised, until abruptly the flame was gone. Daphne felt oddly put out, as if someone had caught her snooping. She closed the window, struggling with the mullioned hinges, then pulled at the curtains. They wouldn't budge, so she left them for the maid. At Dean Hall, Teddy had said, there was still a staff to keep things ticking over, like the old days before the war, when everything was easier. The old days. If Douglas hadn't deserted her, life would have been so different. He had promised to look after her in sickness and in health. He hadn't kept his word. Daphne shook her head, impatient with herself at how quickly her thoughts turned gloomy. Why spoil a perfectly pleasant weekend? Invitations had been thin on the ground. A woman alone was always awkward, and her circumstances made it doubly so. There would be plenty of hot water, plenty of food and drink, and congenial company to help keep the darkness at bay for a while. Night had fallen, stripping the shape and character from the Sussex Downs. Tomorrow, Daphne promised herself she would take a walk go in search of the house on the hill, perhaps. She felt strangely drawn to it. From the oak hall below, she could hear the gramophone and whispers of jazz. Oddly modern music for so antique a setting. Daphne folded her travelling clothes on the armchair and dressed for dinner. A pink silk dress with a dropped handkerchief waist and low V-beaded neckline that suited her colouring. Peach stockings and a light woolen blue shawl. She paused then removed her wedding ring and put it on the bedside table. She didn't know if the other guests knew about the business with Douglas or not, but there was no sense in inviting unwelcome questions. Her bedroom was at the far end of the south wing. Daphne walked along the dimly lit corridor, jittery at the thought of walking into a room full of strangers. Playing for time, she stopped to admire the glass-fronted doll's house at the top of the stairs. A painted facade of brick, perfectly symmetrical, Red-tiled roof and tall chimneys. It was charming. The miniature clock was set at half-past five and the date was painted in the gabled roof, 1810. Daphne frowned. Certain she'd seen it before, or one just like it in a photograph, though she couldn't bring anything particular to mind. Had it been modelled on a real house, she wondered? Or perhaps made for a daughter of the family who'd once owned Dean Hall? The gong sounded for dinner. Daphne knew she should carry on down, but she couldn't resist taking a quick peek. She unhooked the latch and the door swung open, revealing the entire household from top to bottom. At the lowest level were the working rooms, servants and a flock of geese, the mudroom and the kitchen with brass copper pots and an old rocking chair to one side. On the ground floor was a red and grey tiled entrance hall, a stone fireplace and a grandmother clock, 
a wide central staircase. To the left, a billiard room with a perfect green baize table and rack. To the right, the dining room with twelve mahogany chairs set round a polished oval table. The study was on the first floor, above the billiard room. A leather-topped desk, complete with inkwell and papers. On the brass side table stood the smallest of glasses and a tiny fold of paper propped against the candlestick. The chair was on its side. Daphne reached in and picked it up, realising there was something familiar about this particular room too, though again she couldn't chase the memory down. The brass notes of the gong rang again, and this time Daphne heard Teddy shouting her name to hurry up. She couldn't put it off any longer. As she closed the doors, she noticed there now appeared to be a pinpoint of light in the study. She knew it must be a reflection from the lamps on the landing, but she cupped her hands over the glass all the same and peered in. Sure enough, the study was dark, but the tiny chair was lying on its side again, as if kicked away from the desk. The evening passed in a haze of vermouth and ragtime. Teddy was an excellent host and the company pleasant enough. Daphne flirted a little with a boy who worked in a dispensary and was able to forget for an hour or two. The party wound down at three o'clock in the morning. Teddy had long since taken himself off to bed. The men were slumped in low armchairs with their ties loosened and their eyes bleary with booze and cigars. One of the girls had passed out on the sofa in the oak hall. Daphne slipped away, relieved to have got through the evening without too many awkward questions. The upstairs corridor was pitch black, no light in the doll's house either, and she shivered when she walked into her cold room. The maid had turned down the bed but forgotten to close the curtains. The glint of white chalk in the Sussex downland, turned over by the plough, glistened white in the moonlight, like fragments of bone. She couldn't see the house. Daphne woke with a jolt. One moment she was asleep, dreaming of the beach at Doville and Douglas's arm resting on her sunburnt shoulders. The next she was wide awake, heart pounding and her mouth dry. She glanced at her wristwatch, five o'clock, the silence of the sleeping house surged around her, punctuated only by the gurgling of the water pipes. But yet there was something. The air itself was alive, expectant. Then Daphne realised it was light, not sound, that had disturbed her. Her room was no longer dark, but instead flooded with the colours of an August sunset. She flung back the covers and ran to the window. In the gap between the two clusters of trees, the sky was now a vivid orange and gold. Fierce and violent flames flickered and danced. The house on the hill was burning. Daphne pushed her feet into her outdoor shoes, pulled on her coat over her pyjamas and ran down the corridor, shouting to raise the alarm. The fierce glow of the blaze seemed to reflect off every glass surface inside Dean Hall too, giving the impression the doll's house was also on fire. Struggling with the bolts on the heavy front door, Daphne fled into the park. She couldn't see much. The house was hidden by the curve of the hill and the sky was filled with smoke. But, to her relief, she saw a figure somewhere ahead of her and so headed in the same direction. One of the workers on the estate, or possibly a fellow guest, there was something about his silhouette that she recognised. Wait! He didn't stop. 
Daphne ran after him, up the hill, forcing herself to keep going until she reached the house. Her first thought was how perfectly beautiful it was, an exact copy of the doll's house. Though, of course, that was ridiculous. The house must be the original, the child's toy, the copy. Quickly, she glanced up and saw the hands of the clock were set at 5.30, the same as the doll's house. But the year was different. 1922. Daphne felt a trickle of disquiet. Only now did it hit her that the house was utterly untouched, undamaged. There were no crackling flames, no heat burning the trees. The man was nowhere to be seen either. The only sign of life was the one single flame in a room on the first floor. Hello? She tried the handle and the front door swung open. Anyone about? No one answered. Her nerves jangling, though it didn't occur to her not to go in. Daphne stepped into the red and grey tiled entrance hall. Saw the stone fireplace and the stairs straight ahead. Heard the ticking of the grandmother clock. Then, above her head, she heard a thud. The sound of a piece of furniture falling over. And in that moment, between one beat of her heart and the next, Daphne understood. She understood. Dreading. Fearing what she was going to see, she walked slowly up the stairs to the room where that solitary candle still burnt. The study door was ajar. There was the low armchair and brass table. There was the envelope addressed to her, propped against the candlestick. There was her photograph in the tortoiseshell frame. The chair kicked away from the desk. Daphne knew for certain he was in the room with her. Forcing herself to turn around, she raised her eyes to look upon what she had never seen in life. Feet swinging in the air. Hands limp and lifeless by his side. Her husband. Hanging. Twisting in the still air. Daphne's hand flew to her mouth. A ghost or an impression left in time she didn't know or care, only that it was Douglas. Her Douglas just as he had been found in the study of his parents' house five years ago. Douglas, who, unable to cope with his nightmares of gas and barbed wire and the guilt of living when his friends had died, had taken his own life, left a letter saying he didn't want to be a burden, that she'd be better off without him. She'd not been able to forgive him for leaving her, or herself for failing him, but now, as Daphne stared at the image of his beloved face, she could see he was at peace. She, at last, could accept he had done what he thought was best. The time had come to grieve. She could allow herself to miss him and mourn the loss of their shared life together. Finally, the tears began to fall. They found her, hours later, appearing, as Teddy put it, like a wraith out of the mist. It turned out Daphne had been lucky... There had been some kind of electrical short circuit in the south wing of Dean Hall and the wiring had blown, setting fire to the doll's house and taking hold of the first floor corridor in seconds. Daphne's room was cut off from the rest of the house. She wouldn't have stood a chance. But what I don't understand, Teddy said, is what the hell you were doing out in the gardens in the middle of the night in the first place. Daphne tried to explain about the house on the hill and the man who'd led her to safety. But Teddy was adamant. 
there were only workmen's cottages on the estate. He'd asked around. As for the doll's house, it had been bought by the current owners, brand new. It wasn't connected to Dean Hall at all. As Daphne sat in the oak hall, she realised it didn't really matter anyway. Not now. Douglas had promised to look after her, and he had. He'd been unable to save himself, but he had saved her. He had kept his word. It was down to her now. Next year would be better. It was time to begin again. The House on the Hill by Kate Moss was read by Lily James and directed by Celia DeWolf, and it was a peer production for BBC Radio 4 Extra. And in the last of this collection of tales, tomorrow an old man's guilt will haunt him and not release him until the truth is told in The Revenant. This is BBC Radio 4 Extra. Tales. When I was young, my parents had a book, Folklore, Myths and Legends of Britain. It had a black cloth cover and a gold-embossed image of a Viking with beard and horned helmet on the front. Inside, a cornucopia of stories that had endured for 2,000 years. It was in these pages that I first came across the classic English folktale, The Mistletoe Bride. Grisly, oddly compelling, it's the sort of tale that sticks in the imagination. Several of the pieces I've written were inspired by the memory of those long, happy teenage days of reading back in the 1970s. Among them, two versions of the story of the bride who disappeared on her wedding day. This is the first of them. The Mistletoe Bride, Bramshill House, Hampshire, October 1935. I hear someone coming. Have they caught the echo of my footsteps on these floorboards? It is possible it has happened before. I pause and listen, but now I no longer hear anything. I sigh, as always, hope is snatched away before it can take root. Even now, after so long, I cannot account for the fact that no one ever ventures into this part of the house. I do not understand how I am still waiting, waiting after all these years. Sometimes I see them moving around below, sense their presence. Bramshill House has been home to many families in my time, and though the clothes and the styles and the customs are different, it seems to me that each generation is much the same. I remember them all, their faces alive with the legends of the house and the belief that it is haunted. Men and women and children listening to the stories. The story of a game of hide-and-seek. I pray that this will be the day, the end of my story, that this time someone at last will find me. But the halls and the corridors beneath me are silent again. No one is coming. And so then, as always, I am carried back to that first Christmas so very long ago. It is my wedding day. I should be happy, and I am. I am, yet I confess I am anxious, too. My father's friends are lawless, their cups clashing against one another and goose fat glistening on their cheeks, their voices raised. There has been so much wine drunk that they are no longer themselves. Their wild good cheer echoes around the old oak hall so loud that I can no longer hear the lute or viol set for our entertainment. 
There is mistletoe and holly, white berries and red, the scent of lilies, lily of the valley, though I do not understand how such blooms survive in the cold of this December. The servants have gone back and forth with flagons and plates and dishes. No one lacks for anything. We have sung and listened to antique ballads of love and loss and battle, and we have danced and danced until my feet are sore and my slippers worn through. Lovell, <laughs> I must learn to call him husband, leads me in the cotillion. His fairy bride, he says, lighter than air, barely there at all. And I can see this pleases him. The hours pass. The feast continues late into the afternoon, as was the custom then. Things are different now. Outside, it has grown dark. I look to my husband and I see that, like me, he is weary of the traditions of the feast. All at once, I understand what I might do. My lords, shall we have a game, I say, a game of hide-and-seek for all those who yet have strength in their legs? The atmosphere changes, it bristles and sharpens, becomes eager. The young men think of what mischief might be hidden in the shadows. The young women dream of who might come to find them. My husband laughs. We shall, he says, clapping his hands, though only if my beautiful wife will honour me with a kiss beneath the mistletoe before the game begins. I feel no aversion to the thought of his lips upon mine, though I would rather it not be a sport to be observed by the assembled company, but I oblige and I smile, <laughs> tilt my face to his, a servant holds a bow over our heads. The bargain is struck. Now let our play begin, I say. For this moment I am la fille coquette, charming and gay. I can see Lovell's eyes upon me and know he means to be the one who discovers my hiding place. He claps his hands again and all fall silent. The ladies shall hide first, the gentlemen shall seek. We will give you to the count of... But I do not hear what he says, because we are already running from the hall, laughing and glancing back over our shoulders. Silken brocade, our pretty gowns, painting with colour the long corridors and cavernous spaces of this fine house. I hear the chorus of men's voices counting. Twenty-five, twenty-six, twenty-seven. I take the main staircase. I do not yet know Bramshill House well. There are sixty rooms or more. and I do not want to lose my way. Forty-seven, forty-eight, forty-nine. We are scattering in all directions in our game of hide-and-seek. I take the next flight of stairs up to the second floor, where the smaller bedrooms are to be found, along the upper gallery and into a bare room, clearly little used, with a fleur-de-lis wallpaper. Perhaps I have brought the perfume of the lilies with me, but I fancy there is a scent of them in this room, too. Ninety-nine and one hundred! Oh, I hesitate, then step inside the room. There is no furniture save a substantial old oak chest set below the window. It is deep and long, the length of a man, and bound fast by four wide metal bands. 
I wonder, did it once hold the trousseau of another bride brought to marriage at Bramshill House? Or do its proportions suggest it was fashioned for a lord of the manor for a voyage? I unbuckle the ornate fastening and lift the lid, thinking that it might serve as my hiding place. And, indeed, the chest is empty, save for a bolt of pale blue cotton which lines the bottom like a cradle blanket. I hesitate again, then lift my bridal gown and climb up and into the chest, arranging my skirts around me. I fold my veil to serve as a pillow and then lie back. I realise the chest is visible from the corridor, even in the weak light from the candles, and I do not want my hiding place to be too immediately evident. I hesitate for a third time. Then I reach up and lower the lid shut. I hear the sigh of the wood as it drops firm back into place. The clasp is loose and argues, rattles. It is confined within the chest, but I feel safe within the dark and I'm grateful for the solitude. The air will soon become stale, so I push at the lid. Oh, it does not give. I experience a passing spark of concern that I cannot move it, but I'm warm and comfortable and I do not think I will come to harm. Then I hear the sound of the door to the room banging shut, blown by a gust of wind. Even then, I do not worry. I can hear noises from below, and I'm sure someone soon will come. My husband soon will come. I close my eyes and wait for Lovell. I did not mean to sleep. My head fills with strange dreams, following one hard on the heels of the next. A kaleidoscope of bright colours becoming darker. Candles blown out, one by one by one. Oh, my sleep grows deeper. Memories of the springs and summers and autumns of childhood. A winter wedding. The white of the mistletoe bough and the green of the holly. Lovell does not find me. The food on the marriage table grows cold, congeals. They are looking and calling out my name. It is no longer a game. Impatience turns to fear. They hunt all that night and the next day. 